Um, let me ask you, have you, have you this is in, for illustration's sake, have you ever been on a boat in the middle of a lake? Maybe you were fishing, maybe you were sitting on the swim pad enjoying the sun. It could be the calmest day of the year on any given lake with hardly any boating traffic or wind or wake unless the boat you're on is anchored it is going to drift away it may be a slow and gradual drift and you might not even sense it but unless your boat is anchored it is going to drift on a slow but steady collision course the same is is true of the Christian faith and this is made clear throughout the book of Hebrews that we have recently entered into in a series we've called The Supremacy of Christ. The Jewish Christians to whom this sermon-like letter was first written, well, they were facing physical persecution on account of their faith in Christ, and it was likely all happening in the city of Rome. Tragically, The persecution they were facing was prompting some of them to drift away from the Christian faith entirely back into their former ways of Judaism. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of the, the book, the letter of Hebrews, whether it was the Apostle Paul or Luke or someone else, in chapter 1, he began right off the bat by highlighting and heralding the supremacy of Christ reminding the Jewish Christians that Christ stands over and above all of creation and all the former prophets and all the angelic host. And this truth of the supremacy of Christ is not only a mysterious comfort in times of affliction, it is a powerful corrective against doctrinal drifting. In our passage this morning, which is Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 9, the author of Hebrews continues his corrective efforts with an urgent warning to his Jewish Christian audience. And in this passage, we'll see the first of five warnings that are issued throughout the book of Hebrews. And this warning is as appropriate for us as it was the Jewish Christians who first received it. And so I'd invite you to follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels 
that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Oh, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to hear and to pay really close attention to the gospel truths heralded in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage of God's word poses to us three truths that together serve as an anchor. An anchor that can and will withstand the most violent winds of adversity an anchor that can and will withstand the alluring winds of flawed doctrine. The three truths, and there are more than just three in this passage, but the three that we'll consider for the remainder of our time, if you're a note taker, this, number one, the message of Christ is all sufficient. Number two, the control of Christ is all encompassing. Three, the salvation of Christ must not be neglected. I'll repeat those as we go. Number one, the message of Christ is all sufficient. In verses two, three, and four, the author of Hebrews writes that since the message that was declared by angels proved to be reliable, that since the people of Israel suffered the consequences when they transgressed and disobeyed that message, well, how shall we escape from the punishment for sin if we neglect a great salvation, such a great salvation? The message of this great salvation, the author continues, was declared at first by the Lord Jesus and then it was echoed by his apostles, those who heard. And God the Father validated the message of this great salvation through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts poured out by the Holy Spirit. Now, if anyone's wondering, the, the message that Christ has declared is, of course, the gospel message. 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Gentile. This gospel message is not only backed, as we're told in verses 2, 3, 4, it's not only backed by all three persons of the Godhead. This gospel message is superior to the message that was once declared by the angels. Now, million dollar question. What was the message of the angels? What was the message of the angels that had once proved to be reliable, but is now seemingly by these verses and made more explicit throughout the letter, is now being outshone by the gospel message. In Deuteronomy 33.2, when the people of Israel were gathered at Mount Sinai, the law of Moses was declared to them in the presence of tens of thousands of angels. In Galatians 3.19 and Acts 7.53, the apostle Paul and the martyr, deacon Stephen, they even go so far as to say that the law of Moses was put into place by angels. And so, in verse 2, the reliable angelic message that the, he, the author of Hebrews is no doubt referring to is the law of Moses. Expressed in 613 codes of conduct, the law of Moses was perfect for its God-intended purpose within its God-intended time. When the people of Israel disobeyed the law of Moses, they were cursed. They were rightly punished. And the few times that they obeyed it, they were blessed. Now, why is the author of Hebrews emphasizing here the superiority of the gospel over and above the law of Moses? I don't think that any of us would argue against that. Well, the answer is found in the context. Remember with me, a number of the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was first written, they were drifting away from their former Christian, or they were drifting away from their faith, uh, Christian faith, and they were returning to their former ways of Mosaic Judaism. Adhering to the law of Moses was not only more familiar to them, they were Jews, the law of Moses, a lot more familiar to them than this gospel. Not only was it a lot more familiar to them, it also attracted far less opposition from the city around them. Not only were these Jewish Christians drifting away from the completed work of Christ, they were also looking down their noses at and segregating themselves from the Gentile Christians in their church who were not observing the law of Moses. With this context in view, and I know this is a bit teachy right now, with this context in view, it should be clear that verses 2, 3, and 4 are aimed at correcting the Jewish Christians and bringing them back to the all-sufficient message of Christ. Again, 
unlike these first century Jewish Christians, you and I probably are not being lured back into our former ways of Judaism because our, our former ways were not Judaism, right? But I do think that this passage, I think that the, the theme of it, if you will, I think it should prompt us to ask, how might we be tempted in our current modern moment? How might we be tempted to drift away from the all-sufficient message of Christ crucified and resurrected to save sinners. This message, I don't know if you've noticed, is not popular today, right? Christ crucified and resurrected to save sinners implies you're a sinner. Came to save you from that. Well, that's offensive, Sorry? How might we be tempted to drift away from this or, or soft-step it or really just not get to it when we're, when we're with our unbelieving co-workers and, and neighbors and family members? Let's not bring up the, 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 the gospel. Let's, how might we be kind of drifting from from the rightness and the urgency of that word. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation or sidestep it or soften it? How shall we escape? So point number one is this. The message of Christ is all sufficient. Point number two, we're going to keep on going through. Point number two, the control of Christ is all-encompassing. In verses five through eight, the author of Hebrews returns to the theme that dominated last Sunday's passage. And Pastor Ed did a great job unpacking uh, basically the biggest half, the, the, the majority of chapter one. And the author of Hebrews is returning to that. Christ is superior to the angels, right? So in verse five, for it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, for it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, just a... <laughs> A bit of a, a humorous commercial for just a moment. Don't you love how the writer of Hebrews is like, it's been testified somewhere. I don't know exactly where, but it, it's in God's word somewhere. Don't you, don't you love that, right? So if you ever feel silly, which I tend to, when I can't remember a certain, you know, there's something in scripture, I, I, I don't remember. If you ever feel silly because you can't remember the exact chapter and verse of a particular saying of God's word, don't, don't, don't feel silly. All scripture has been inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. And so it's perfectly sufficient to say what the writer of Hebrews says here. It says somewhere in, in God's word. Google it. <laughs> in verses six through eight, the passage of scripture that the writer of Hebrews is quoting from is Psalm 108. In Psalm 108, what King David is marveling at 
is the significant role that God entrusted to mankind after he created the world. If we were to flip all the way back to Genesis 1, beneath the host of heaven, right, a little lower than the angels, God made man and gave to man dominion over all the earth. The sheep, the oxen, King David writes in 108, birds and fish and all of it. So this is what King David marvels at in Psalm 108. And he does so with the right posture, I would add. By, he, listen to his prayerful question. What is man that you, oh God, are even mindful of him? That's a fitting question in general, isn't it? I mean... The eternally triune creator God who possesses all majesty and might and perfection, he not only created the world in such a way that we would know that he exists just by looking out around us, but then he then entrusted this world, his world, into our stewardship. Who are we that you are so mindful of us, God? This is a fitting question in general, but as we consider the way we responded to God after he entrusted to us the dominion of all things, it becomes even more fitting, right? Ever since Adam and Eve, mankind has spurned God, misused the dominion that we have been entrusted with. We have worshiped the things God has made rather than the maker himself. This is, as our brother Mitch Marcheski made very clear a couple of weeks ago, this is the essence of sin. The worshiping of what God has made, people, places, things, rather than worshiping he who made them. And this sin of ours is so permeated in our minds and in our desires, and in our affections, and in our wills, that even if God were to give us a second chance, right? Let's restart everything. Second chance. Love me, and follow me, and obey me. And then if he gave us a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance, it would do no good. It would do no good. And this is actually what the law of Moses was intended to prove. In Galatians 3.19, the Apostle Paul asks a rhetorical question. Why, then, was the law given? In other words, why were the 613 codes of conduct spelled out in writing for the people of Israel? Why? The law was given, he answers, to reveal our problem of sin. You see, people don't know they need a savior until they know they're a sinner. The law was given, Paul says, to reveal the problem of sin, but he doesn't stop there. He says, until. Bum, bum, bum. The law was given to reveal the problem of sin until the offspring should come. 
The law of Moses was never intended as a second chance to the sinful children of the first Adam. It was intended to prove our need for a second Adam altogether, a true and better Adam, a last and lasting Adam. With this in mind, verses 6, 7, and 8 of our passage take on a new messianic dimension. It's true that when King David wrote these verses, Psalm 108, that the author of Hebrews is quoting from, it's true that he had in mind the beginning of creation when God placed mankind on the earth beneath the angels and gave to us dominion over his creatures. But oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit had a whole new dimension that he had in mind when he inspired Psalm 108. Because how much more do these verses that the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 108, how much do these verses sing about the incarnation of Christ? You, God, made him, Christ, for a little while at his incarnation to be lower than the angels. You have crowned him, Christ, with glory and honor, verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Christ, he, the Father, has left nothing outside of Christ's control. At present, we don't even see everything. We can't even see everything as being within his control. Even though we can't fully comprehend everything as being within his control, it is. It is. Christ is all-encompassingly in control, and we get to see him. We can see him. We're his. He who has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, man, don't think that, that we just misread that. Christ has been crowned with glory and honor because of his death. That's not a typo. <laughs> And here we have the, logic, the logical conundrum of, of our faith. Christ has been crowned with glory and honor because of his death. This should give a spine of iron to every follower of Christ, no matter what opposition we face, because the all-encompassingly sovereign Son of God, for him, death was the glory-packed plan all along. In John 8, nope, John 10, verse 18, Jesus said this ahead of time. No one takes my life from me. No one. I lay it down of my own accord because I have the power to lay it down, but I also have the power to take it up again when I darn well choose. Those words right there and the subsequent resurrection from the dead is like the holy mic drop heard round the world. This is the Christ whose name we bear. And so, brothers and sisters, let us maybe take from this some comfort 
that would have no no doubt been enjoyed by the, the, the Jewish Christians who first read this letter. Is your heart troubled right now, in, in, in even today, by what seems to be, in our culture, a slow but steady defeat of biblical Christianity? Is your heart troubled by what you're seeing? You scroll through, you watch the news, and you read the headlines. Are you troubled by what seems to be the slow but steady defeat of biblical Christianity? Don't you know that Christ holds sovereign authority over all things? That nothing is outside his control and this Christ who, whom his, his name we bear, he is in the business of bringing victory, ultimate victory from what seems like defeat at first. Does that not give you a spine of iron? He's in control. He's in the business of using seeming defeat to bring about ultimate victory. Hold fast, Christian. Don't lose hope. Take heart. Everything is in subjection under his feet. What can your coworkers do, really, about your unrelenting devotion to Christ? Get you fired? Don't you believe that your sovereign Christ can and will provide for you? What can your neighbors do about your unrelenting devotion to Christ? Mock you? Disinclude you from the neighborhood party you didn't want to go to anyway? What's the worst? Don't you believe that the sovereign Christ can and will surround you and boost you with angelic support and the blessed company of fellow believers who are in the trenches with you? A question I'm asking myself as of late, what can our legislators do about my devotion to Christ when I inevitably refuse to comply with the fine print of the Respect for Marriage Act they're trying to pass. What can they do? Arrest me? Don't I believe, don't we believe, that the sovereign Christ can and will comfort and care for me and my family? Point number two, the control of Christ is all-encompassing and it should give us a spine of iron. We're not in this alone. And I pray that that's comforting to us as it would have been to the Jewish Christians. Point number three, the salvation of Christ must not be neglected. If Christ is superior to the Old Testament prophets, which he is, And if Christ is superior to the angels, and if the message declared by Christ is superior to the message that had been declared by angels, which it is, verse one, we gotta pay a lot much more closer, really, that, we gotta pay a lot closer attention to, much more close 
er attention. I don't know. I can't speak English. We've got to pay much closer attention to it, is my point. It's always humbling because English isn't my second language. And then Pastor Ed gets up here and English is his second language and he speaks it better than, than me. So... Fighting words. I like it. Verse 1, we've got to pay much closer attention to the gospel. Like much closer attention to the gospel. We've got to meditate on the gospel and believe it again and again and again. We've got to sing the gospel and believe it again and again and again. On Wednesdays, on Sundays, and every day in between. We've got to remind one another of the gospel so that we believe it again and again and again. Martin Luther once told his congregation that he endeavored to preach the gospel to them every single Sunday because by the time Sunday came around each week, they, like he, had already forgotten it. We need to beat that drum. The good news of Christ. The good news of Christ. If you are wearied and weakened, by the downward trajectory of this sinful world. If you are disheartened by the opposition that is increasingly coming against God's truth and God's people, we need to write the gospel on our eyelids. The gospel is the sure and steady anchor that keeps us unmoved through the winds of affliction and unbelief. Write on your eyelids a passage that summarizes the gospel beautifully, like Romans 8, 31 through 39. I'll just read it. What shall we say to all these things? All these things, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He did not spare his own son in order to make us his own. So won't he graciously give to us all things? Everything that we need? Who's going to bring a lasting charge against you, believer? God has justified you from all your sin. Everything. Done. Who's going to condemn you? Christ is at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for you right now. He's a faithful forever high priest, always pleading his blood. And what can possibly separate you from the love of Christ? What can possibly? All tribulation, all hell on earth, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, darkness, danger, sword? No, no. These things don't get the last word. The train wreck of our culture right now and all the threats that we... This don't get the last word. Nothing in all creation, not even your own days where you're faithless, he remains faithful. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Nothing. Nothing. 
You can't lose what you didn't earn in the first place. You can't unchoose what you didn't choose in the first place. You can't become unborn again once you've been made born again, once you've been made new. The gospel is the sure and steady anchor that has the power to keep us unmoved through the winds of affliction, no matter how violent they are. The gospel is also the sure and steady anchor that keeps us unmoved. It keeps us from veering into flawed doctrine and a a course onto the shipwrecking of our faith. Here's a gospel word for those of us who feel obliged to look at Jesus as our entry. This is what the Jewish Christians were doing. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Jesus saves us, but it's our obedience to the law that, that really maintains our standing and position and place It's what makes God pleased. Romans 10, 3 through 13. Paul writes, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Period. To everyone who believes. Period. If you confess with your mouth, Paul writes, that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And everyone who believes in Christ in this way, they will not be disappointed. They'll find that they're not lacking in anything. They're not lacking in anything. The gospel here, as portrayed here, and as we will see on repeat throughout the book of Hebrews. This preaching of the gospel was intended to correct and to bring back the Jewish Christians from their drift into legalism. And it also protects us from our drift into licentiousness of, well, I get to just go and do whatever the heck I want since I am now secure in Christ. No, 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 no. That's not actually trusting the gospel. And herein lies the anchor, a constant trust, a constant reminder, a constant belief in the person and completed work of Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and would urge you if you do not know that you're a sinner and you're willing to hear it from me, you are, and would urge for you to be made right with God by trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection on account of your sin. Be made right with God in that. And brothers and sisters who have already responded to that, guess what? There is a constancy to that with the Christian life. We never graduate from that. We never graduate from that. Preach yourself the gospel, and guess what? It's God's kindness that saturates the gospel that leads us again and again and again to repentance. That we would love him as he deserves. That we would love one another as he teaches us. 
This is our anchor. It is our sure and steady anchor. And only just now am I realizing I should have picked Christ the sure and steady anchor as our next song. But I didn't because, you know, I was tunnel vision. But this is, this gospel is for the Jewish Christians and for us, our anchor in times of opposition and in times when we are tempted to drift away. This is our anchor. Let's pray and then let's continue to worship together. Well, Father, among many other things in this passage of Scripture, we are reminded, maybe some of us for the first time are told, that the message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, is all sufficient. Let us, Lord, keep our eye on it. Hold us fast to it. The control of Christ is all-encompassing. Oh, Lord, let that be to us a comfort in this moment when it seems as though everything is out of control. You know what seemed like it was out of control was the death of your son on a cross, and yet that was the glory-packed plan all along. Help us to trust that. And Lord, let us not neglect the salvation of Christ that we have been given by faith. Thank you for your grace. Guard us and keep us. Establish us firmly and help us, Lord, together as a fellowship of saints to stand with one another in the trenches. This day and every day we are together in Jesus' name. Amen.